take your Bibles tonight, if you would, and turn to Genesis. This is our last installment in our wilderness series. Genesis 16. And verses 7 through 16. Genesis 16, beginning in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly I have been I have seen him who looks after or literally sees me. Therefore the well was called Ber Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was eighty six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Interestingly enough, Hagar's name means flight, or probably more literally forsaken. Uh, and I'm thinking, as you read the text in its entirety and the context, that that's probably what she was feeling like when she fled Abraham and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai. Things, for a while, had been getting better. Um, she left there probably when... Abraham and Sarah were in Egypt, and they got gifts from the Pharaoh. She, Hagar was probably one of the slaves they gave her as a gift, and so she's been a slave all along. But now because they can't have children, and they've been waiting for many years um, to have a child and cannot, the common thing in the culture was to have a slave elevated to what I would call a second-tier wife, and then you could have a child if the wife was barren and couldn't do that so that you could have an heir to your family or an ancestor or, or so to speak to pass on the lineage and the name and so forth. So that's what they do, and Hagar is the one that's chosen. And as a result, things were getting better for her. She'd been elevated in her status. Um, she wasn't no longer just considered a slave um, and she had became pregnant, so she was going to be able to fulfill all of that. But then things took a turn for the worse. Um, she gets a little, can I say, uppity with Sarah, and Sarah gets angry, and then Hagar gets out. I mean, she really does. She leaves, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing she leaves at nighttime. Um, she's alone, she's pregnant. Probably when you're sneaking off, you don't have a lot of supplies that you can take with you. Um, we catch her, the Bible says, on the way to Shur by a spring. I think it was Elim. 
spring. And if that is true, then she probably has been gone at this point for a week. She's traveled 70 miles on her own, which is about the same distance that uh, Joseph and Mary did when they made their journey when, before Jesus was born to Bethlehem. It's a long way in a very arid uh, and, and dry and dangerous um, countryside. And that's where she's at. Um, Hagar knows about Abram's God. She knows about him. She knows the claims about him. She couldn't have been this long with him and not known about that, as prominent as God was in their lives. But what she didn't know was, and never experienced, whether this God actually cared about her. And she knows this, that her past is incredibly painful and her future at best is unclear and uncertain. Um, have you ever been there? You ever look back in your life and all the things in the past and some of the things that you've gone through and it, you try not to think about it too long or rewind the tapes because it's hard to remember those things. To play them again and to go over that in your mind seems like it makes it fresh again. And I, and I think she's had a real struggle being a slave and then being sold as a slave, being given as a piece of property Things got better, and then it went worse, and it dashed her hopes of what things might have become. And now she's headed back to the road to Shur. Shur, the name in Hebrew means wall, and there was a garrison there. It's the, it's the area that you get to right before you enter into Egypt, and they had a big wall there. There's been dug up architecturally, I mean ar archaeologically, and they used to have a garrison there to kind of keep people out from coming into Egypt before they got too close uh, to the main cities where everybody was. And she's on her way, close to getting back home. She wants to go home. But even when she goes home, she's pregnant. And everybody's not going to know how she got pregnant. So she doesn't know how everybody's going to receive that. And she's having some difficulty. Um, but she's going to learn a valuable lesson that maybe perhaps that's why God brought you here tonight, so that you could learn the very same lesson in your wilderness experience. And that is this. God sees everyone and everything, including your situation. So tonight I want to take a look at Hagar's life and her wilderness experience and see if we can learn some of the things that helped her um, in her wilderness experience. Now, I'm going to break it down very simply tonight. There are two important truths, two events, I would say, that took place in this passage and I would have you tonight to recognize that these two events are connected. And I would tell you, you can't really have the second one without the first one. And I'm going to prove that to you. And so here they are. The first one is, in verses 7 and 8, God sees Hagar. He sees her. In fact, she's going to name the place the God who is the God who sees. The seeing God. Um, the Bible says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord, which is used three times in the text, verse 9, 11, um, and 13, I believe it is, or maybe it was 7, 9, and 11. But they, they have that three different times. It's a Christophany. Most theologians and commentators think it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. So he finds her, it says, and the Lord, angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And so let me tell you about God, okay? Number one, I want you to see his transcendent side. 
God sees Hagar, and he's, what he's, how she's going to see him, she sees him as a God who can see everyone and everything. And, and let me get very detailed. She, God knows where she is. In fact, look how personal it gets, too, at the same time. It says he found her. I, I actually love that. <laughs> I circled that in my Bible, and I, it says he found. I think it's fantastic. Here's the thing. She's in the wilderness. She's alone. She's pregnant. She's a slave. She doesn't have much to her name. She doesn't know if she's going to make it. And God finds her. You know what I found? You know I broke my Bible? I said, Hagar is not looking for God, but God is looking for Hagar. He is. You know what? Sometimes I can tell you this. In people's wilderness, and I've had long conversations and counseling people over the years, I have found even amongst God's people at times that you'd think that in the most difficult times that they'd be seeking God, but they're not. They're not. They're still thinking as was said tonight, that they can control it, that they can remedy the situation, that they can come up with a solution to handle all the problems that they're facing. And, and, and what I loved about the text is it says, here's what kind of God he is. The God that sees her is not just a God who sees her off at a distance, but he finds her. You know, think about it this way. Jesus walks into Jericho in Luke 19, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Because I have to spend the day at your house today. And the end of the text says this. Because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, Jesus found Zacchaeus personally. He knew exactly where Zacchaeus was in the middle of town. If you drive through Jericho today, you don't probably want to get out because it's a pretty dangerous place. Sometimes even in the daytime. I got to drive through it. They have a sycamore tree there, and I'm 100% positive it's not the Zacchaeus tree, although that's its name. (laughs) It would be 2,000 years old, and I'm not even thinking it's going to be half that old. But it is very much in the center of town, and is very much like that tree. And it is a big tree. It is very wide tree, probably wider than one of these pew sections, wide, and very low to the ground. And Zacchaeus is up there. And let me tell you this. Jesus is walking. If you know anything about what happens when a very celebrity-like person comes into town, especially if they're a rabbi, everybody in town goes out to meet them and then walks the guy in. The expectation was Jesus would spend the day with the famous priest or the rabbi or the religious leader of the synagogue. And he'd spend the time with all the up-and-coming people, so to speak. So Jesus stops in the middle of town, looks up, because he knows exactly where he is. He knows. And he wants to spend the day with him, which made everybody upset. See, Hagar wasn't seeking God, but God was seeking her. And I love those stories. You know why? Because Hagar, people like her, Zacchaeus, you know what it makes me understand? That no one is too lost for God to find. Nobody And you can say it, and I've heard even in recent weeks, people who told me that their friend or the person they know very well gets saved, and here's what their comment was. I never believed in all the years, and they kind of said this sheepishly, that the person I pray for in my family to get saved, I really never thought it would happen. They are so against God. They were so close to the gospel. And here they are getting saved and tears coming down their eyes and how embarrassing it was for me that I never believed this could happen. 
Because God is that God. Listen, there's no one too lost for him to find. Read Luke 15 sometime about all how God is lost and found God. He is. Remember the coin story and all the things and eventually the lost son in Luke 15. All of these examples in Luke's gospel because this is what God is like. He knows where she is. Let me tell you tonight. Let's apply it to our lives. Can I tell you tonight? Take cheer. God knows exactly where you are. He knows. He knows your physical geography, and he knows your spiritual geography. See, it says, by the spring, in the wilderness, on the way to shore, next to the wall, basically. See, God knows exactly where it is. I think it's awesome. God knows every moment of the day your physical coordinates. He does. He knows your, the number of your house. He knows the street name of your house. He knows where it's located. And let me go a little further. He knows the spirituality of it too because he knows what goes on in your house. He knows what goes on in your marriage. He knows what goes on with your children. He knows all those things. He always knows where you are. I've been on some missions trips and I've been in some places that I thought were really scary. I've been downtown when I was in Trenton for those years. I've been downtown in some places that I probably shouldn't have been. I was walking down alleyways to my Bible study that had graffiti on the wall, and I did it because I wanted to learn what gangs and the symbols they use and how they marked off their territory until I found out that that year, a whole year I was walking down this alley is where the gangs had fights and people had been killed. And I go, okay, I'm not going down that alley anymore. But let me tell you this, the Lord knew all about those. He knew exactly where I was and knew exactly what was going on in my life. And I can tell you this, he knows. He knows exactly where you are. And he knows what's going on inside in your life. But he doesn't know just your geographical, your physical coordinates. He knows spiritually. Because look what the text says. Look at 16, 7 again. I mean, sorry, 8. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where, watch, two diagnostic questions. Where have you come from? And where you're going. Now, if you've read Genesis in its totality, you'll find that you'll know this throughout all scripture, but especially as it starts the Bible, that God never asks questions to get information. Never. You know what he asks questions for? Transformation. He wants you to think. He wants to think about your life and your situation. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned against God? God comes to them, and what does he do? He asks questions. Where are you? Why are you hiding? What have you done? Do you think God knows? Of course he knows. He knew exactly. That's why he came. He knew exactly what was happening. Remember Cain? Where is your brother? What have you done? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, why is he asking Cain questions? Because he wants Cain to be transformed. He wants him to admit it, to repent, to change. He's asking questions. He asks Hagar questions. He knows where she is. He knows where she's come from. He knows where she's going. But she doesn't. She's not willing to admit it. There are two good questions. And can I tell you tonight, when you get in a wilderness situation, whether it's because of the doing of someone else, like Sarai making it hard on her, or you have some culpability yourself by the choices that you've made, whatever the case might be, it is a very good thing to ask yourself these two questions. Where have you come from? What brought you to your wilderness place? Have you ever sat down and asked that? 
You ever sat down and say, God, why am I here? How did I get to this place in your, my life? I've talked to numerous people, maybe you haven't, maybe you felt this yourself, that I say, you know, I'm surprised that you're in this place in your life. And I, how did you get here? And they begin to tell me the story because this is what they're thinking. I never really thought I'd be in this place in my life. I never thought that I'd be at this place in my life spiritually or I'd be this way in my relationship or my marriage. I never thought I'd really be here. And then they sit down and start telling the story and it starts making sense of the patterns of things that were taking place in their lives. What's the purpose for your pain? Why do you think God has brought you to this place? Why do you think it, he let you get to here before he said anything or let you know that he sees you? See, what have you come from and where are you going? Where are you going, Hagar? And if she's honest, here's what she's saying. As far away from Sarai as possible. You know what she's doing, right? We do it all the time. She's running. She's running from her situation. She's thinking that the best response to her wilderness is to escape it at all costs. She's not running to God. She's running from God. Now, here's the crazy thing. She can escape Sarai's presence, but she can never escape God's. God is not a local deity like Jonah and people on his boat thought. Jonah couldn't get on a boat and get far enough away that God had no claim on his life anymore. See, I think there are some of God's people, and perhaps it's you tonight. A lot of God's people don't really grow in their Christian life like they should. You know why? Because they're always running. Always running from their situations. And they've kind of made it a habit in their life. They ran away from things that made them afraid when they were growing up, and they ran away from their parents' authority. When they got older, they ran away from situations, and they should have dealt with it at work, but they found it easier to get another job. And they ran away from it in their marriage, and they didn't want to solve their problems and work through it and humble themselves and admit they were wrong, so they found another wife or another husband. And they had a problem in the church, and somebody didn't do what they wanted or didn't do what they liked, and so they said, you know what, I'm just going to go to another church. And their whole life, their whole life is marked by a pattern of running. Running to the next thing, thinking it'll be better if I can escape and get away. And God comes to her and he asks her these two questions. And here's what he wants her to know. Listen, you're running from Sarah and, Sarah, and maybe you think you're forsaken. But I want you to know, and by his appearance and his voice, he lets her know this. Your name means forsaken, but as far as I'm concerned, you are not. You're not forsaken See, said God said, your name is Hagar, and you're forsaken. And you may be forsaken by others, but you won't be forsaken by me. Now listen, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Because God not only knows what, write it down, not only where she is, but who she is. Did you notice in the text in verse 8? She may not know God hardly at all, but he knows her name he says, Hagar. He calls her by name. Now recognize, watch, recognize in the world who she is. She is with Abraham, who is the seed of Israel, right? And everybody, almost everybody that's with them are Jewish, the first ones. She's Egyptian, the immortal enemy of God's people. That's who she is. So she is an Egyptian, ready? She is a woman, 
So she didn't have a lot of rights at all, especially when you're an Egyptian, right? In, in this con- context. And she is a slave. So if she had any rights at all, which she probably didn't have much at all anyways, she lost them all when she was given by Pharaoh to Abraham. She has no rights. And she's pregnant. And she's alone. That's who she is. But the angel of the Lord comes to her and talks to her and finds her and tells her, listen, not only am I transcendent and I can see you, but I'm imminent. I'm close and I want you to know personal because I know your name. I know what your name means. I know, I think you, you think you're living out that name and that name will always be what defines who you are. But I want you to know this. I've come into your life today in the middle of that wilderness. I found you here. Why? I want to be the one who tells you who you are. I want to define what Hagar means. Interesting, isn't it? She's not the main character in this story. She's not an Abraham. She's not Sarah. She's not part of the family. This whole context is about Abraham and Sarah having a baby from which the Messiah eventually will come. That's the whole redemptive, overarching, meta-narrative story. It's this big storyline, and Abraham and Sarah at, this, Sarah at this point are smack dab in the middle of it. It's really all about them. And then you have Hagar, who's only mentioned in chapter 16, chapter 21, and also in Galatians 4. She's not on every page, by any stretch. She's not one of the main characters. She's not high status. She's low status. She doesn't really have a lot going on in her life. But here's what God says. I see you, Gentile, slave, Egyptian woman who's pregnant with the boy who will constantly be against God's people. I still see you. I know your name, and, I, and can I tell you this? God says to you tonight, no matter how you see yourself, no matter how other people may see you, God says, I see you. And if you let me in your life, in the middle of your wilderness, if you understand that I see you, and that can change everything in your life, that means I'll, I'll redefine who you really are if you let me do that. And in order for that to take place, watch, and this is the hard part, He knows where she is. He knows who she is. And so why does he appear to her? Because here's what God's presence in your life will mean. Ready? Because we don't like this. And it's not the order of things that we want. The Bible says in chapter 16 in verse 8, the angel Lord said to her, I'm sorry, verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. You know what the number one need tonight that you have in your wilderness is? To submit. It's the number one need you have. Because to submit means you have to stop running. To submit means you have to stop controlling. Submit means that you're not God and someone else has authority in your life. See, she's running from situations in her life. And the first thing that God says, and by the way, not an option, not a suggestion. It's an imperative. You need to go home. Return. First word, it's emphatic. Return and go back. Why? Because you have a duty to Sarah. You have a job to perform. God is going to use you. But he's not using you when you're running away from what he wants you to be and do. 
says, I want you to go back and I want you to listen. And here's how it goes in the text. God says, first submit, and then I'm going to tell you about the blessing. See, I'm going to make Ishmael a great man, and you're going to have multitude of people, and nations are going to come out of him. And I've got, and these are all familiar, these are almost identical words that Abraham says about Isaac. And you shall call his name Isaac, and you shall call his name Ishmael, and you're going to have a great nation. And it says, they almost, if you put them side by side, you think they were talking about the same person. Even though he's a Gentile, and it's completely contrary to the Jewish people. But God says, listen, Hagar, I know you look at your, you're in this wilderness. I know things are really bad, and I know you think it's hopeless. But if you let me into your life and you submit, there's blessing. But normally, for us, we want the other way around, especially when we're in a wilderness. We want to say, God, please get me out of this. Please bless me. Please help me. Please do all this. And, it, and if you do, then I'll submit. And God says that's not how it works. Not how it works at all. Because God uses our submission so that we're able to get through the wilderness. And when people go through that, here's what they realize. That the wilderness is not just trouble, it's training. See, Hagar thinks that the blessing I need is to get out of this. But what she really needs is to go back and put herself back in it again. You know why? Because you understand this, that God has a purpose in it. And it's not just a bunch of trouble. It's training. He wants to make you into a certain kind of person. And what she needs to understand and what you and I need to understand is all of that stems from this reality. God sees Hagar. He knows your life. He knows what you're going through. He knows what's best. So when he tells you submit, you need to believe him. But we're going to turn the coin over and flip it over and just real briefly think about the other side of it, the second truth or event that's connected. And you have to have the one to have the other, right? So the second one, the first one is God sees Hagar. The second one is Hagar sees God. Do you know if she never would have got in the wilderness, if she never would have got 70 miles out, if she never would have been alone, if she'd never gone all this, you know what? She would have never seen God. Never. Read the whole Bible yourself. I haven't come up with it. I could be wrong. But you know, there are people, men in the Bible, Moses, Paul, Elijah, other men who have seen theophanies, seen a pre-incarnate picture of, or, or Jesus, a revelation of him in the Old Testament. But I don't know of hardly any women who did. Now, Mary sees Gabriel, and other women have seen other, but to see a pre-incarnate time, a revelation of Jesus Christ before he's born, not just once. Hagar gets a double theophany. She gets twice, chapter 16 and 21. And both of them, read it for yourself, they're both about seeing God and then seeing your life in light of seeing God. She gets it. This is not a Jewish woman. This is a slave woman, an Egyptian woman, a low-class woman, a woman whose second tier is not really even in the line of Christ, read Galatians 4 at all. But God appears to her twice. You know why? Because he doesn't want to just come and help her see him. He wants her I'm sorry, for him to see her. He wants Hagar to see God. He wants her to see him, to see him for what he and who he really is. 
And so when she does, the Bible says, look at the text. So she called the name of the Lord, verse 13, who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For, I, for she said, truly I have seen him who sees me. Now, the, it was amazing that she gets a Christophany and sees Jesus. But what the amazing thing to her was is that she saw him and didn't die. Everybody knows you can't see the face of God and live. She did not look into God's face, but she saw Jesus pre-incarnate in some way, shape, or form, heard his voice, and she saw him. And she says, you know what? I see him, and that's why she named the place. um, In verse 14, it says, the one who looks or sees after me, it says, you are God of seeing and the God who sees me. See, tonight I think one of the greatest things that you need to have in your wilderness is a full grasp and understanding that God sees you. He knows where you are. He knows who you are. But let me tell you this. You know what you also need to see? You need to see him in it. You need to see a vision of who God is, what he's trying to accomplish in your life. Let me close with this tonight. If you go to Genesis 21, don't do it. We don't have time. But the second time, she's out in the wilderness. This time, she's been kicked out permanently. She's in the wilderness of Beersheba. God comes to her, and she's out of water. Now, the crazy thing is, probably over the next hill, there's a big spring of water. She thinks she's going to die. Her son, which seems like I know when you read it, he put, she put him under a shrub and then walked about 40, 50 feet away from him because she couldn't stand to watch him die. Now, you think he's a baby, but he's 15 years old okay, at this point. But she thinks it's over. And this is what it says. And God came to her, and then it says this little phrase, and he opened her eyes, Genesis 21, 19. Do you know, in the Bible, in Genesis, and that's the book we're in, Adam and Eve had their eyes open, but not by God, but by sin. Their eyes were open when they ate the forbidden fruit. But then from that time on, the whole thing of the Bible is, the question is, who's going to open your eyes? You remember 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elijah's talking to a servant, Elisha, and it says, oh, we're surrounded. What are we going to do? All the armies are out there. And he says, praise, Lord, open his eyes. And what does he see when he opens? He says, sees all the spiritual chariots, you know, the heavenly host, all the armies, the flaming swords. He sees all this. He goes, we got nothing to worry about. But you know what? God opens his eyes and he sees life in it completely different now. He looks at the circumstances and he's no longer afraid. Why? Because he sees reality. You know, in the Bible, the apostle Paul not that point is Saul. In Damascus Road, the Bible says he's blinded. And then it says, go and so that I can open his eyes. And Ananias touches him. God's opened his eyes. And what does he see? Well, now he sees everything through the lens of Jesus. And his whole life has changed. Acts 16, and Lydia's eyes were opened. The Lord opened her eyes. And every time in the Bible, it's either Satan or sin is opening someone's eyes or God is opening their eyes. And when it's God... When God is opening your eyes, you see everything in your life differently, including your wilderness. See, that's what you need tonight. But they're contingent on one another. See, God sees you, and when you know he sees you, that he's in your life, that you can trust him, and God sees you, and you take refuge in him, then he can open your eyes so that you can see him. And you won't think that you're alone in the wilderness 
And the things that look hopeless and uncertain will no longer seem that way. All you have to do is read 1 Peter and find this, that here's a church and a group of people in Asia Minor that are suffering. It's the theme of 1 Peter. But you know what the little commandment is all throughout? He tells people who are servants, submit. Wives, submit. Everybody submit if you're a servant or a citizen to the government. At the end of the book, chapter 5, you know what he does? He says, everyone submit to your elders. And so you, you talk about everyone in the house, slaves, wives, children, people to the government, every level of society, everyone. Here's how you, and why would he talk so much about submission in a world of suffering? Because you can only do that if your eyes have been opened by God so that you can see that it's not Nero in charge. It's not people who hate you are in charge. God is in charge. See, we need both of those in our wilderness. We need to know that God sees us, and when we do, he'll open our eyes so that we can see him and we'll be able to walk with him and follow him in those wilderness times in our lives, and he'll use them for his honor and glory. Let's pray. Father, tonight, there perhaps are some of God's people here going through a wilderness, uncertainty, question marks, plague us. But Father, all of that can change tonight if we would come to the reality that God sees us. He knows where we are. He knows who we are. And he wants to take those facts and those truths and change our lives with them. Because if we'll submit, if we'll do what he wants, even when obedience seems crazy, like it was when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, when we trust him and obey him and follow him and submit to him, God, then and then alone, will you open our eyes so that we can realize that we can see you that we can put on the God glasses and we'll see our sufferings, we'll see our wilderness, we'll see all the things that trouble us so differently. They won't be just troubles, they'll be training that you can use to form and mold and shape our lives, both as individuals and as church, that we can become more like you. God, would you do it again? Open our eyes that we might see you and as a result, become like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.